Uh, we are going to continue our journey through Exodus, and one of the things that we're doing at this point in the series is we're stepping into some tensions, and I want to just resolve those tensions the way the New Testament resolves them, but we also need to live in them, and today we'll hopefully get a part of the resolution, but even by the end of today, we're not going to resolve all of the tension that we're going to be stepping into. If that makes any sense, great. And if it doesn't, hopefully that will make sense as we get going. I'm trying to pastor you guys, okay, as we go through this. Okay, so back to Exodus 24. Um, on my, in my Bible, it's page 57. Let's stand with a sense of anticipation that God's going to speak. I'm going to start at verse 3. Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words in Torah. They responded with one voice, we do. Everything the Lord has said, we do. We will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took the blood from those offerings. Half of the blood he put in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, which is Exodus 20 through 23, which you know about, right? You know Exodus 20 through 23, right? Okay. He read it to the people. They responded, we do. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, just sprinkled it on the people. What if I did that on a Sunday morning? (laughs) This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders, went up. They saw the God of Israel. They saw him. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God. And they, not just Moses, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, but God with them, they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me in the mountain, stay here. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and its commands that I have written for their instruction. Then the Lord set out with Joshua's aid. Moses went up the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur will go with you. um, And anyone involved in this dispute can go to them. And when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. This is God's word. You guys can be seated. Okay, so uh, God brings Israel out, out of Egypt, slavery, uh, not as an end of, into itself, but so that he can bring Israel in as his own. 
his segula, his treasured possession. And he declares his intent already to Moses in Exodus 6, verse 6, um, like a good gentleman. Then he follows through on that intent. He takes them out of Egypt, leads them to Sinai, where there he gets down on one knee, proposes to them, and then three days later, there's a wedding. And the wedding is described here in Exodus 24, what we've just read. Now here's the deal. Marriages in that day are not sealed with a kiss or a signature. Covenants like marriage are sealed in blood. In fact, I could still take you to villages in that part of the world where in a wedding, the father of the groom will get up with a lamb, slit its throat, and you're all out there watching this, the blood would drain onto the floor and he would take his sandals off and step in that blood. And then the father of the bride would get up and do the same thing, take his sandals off and, and, and walk in the blood. And in doing this, what they were saying, that if my son fails or if my daughter fails in this marriage, let my blood be spilt. Because this is a covenant. And this is the blood of the covenant. And this is how covenants in that day were sealed. And, and that's what's going on here in Exodus 24 when uh, the bulls are sacrificed and Moses takes half the blood and throws it on the altar, on God, and takes the other half of the blood and throws it on the people. A covenant is being made. And these covenants are, are, are sealed in blood. But before Moses throws the blood on the people, what does he do? He reads the ketubah, the wedding vows, the book of the covenant. And what is the book of the covenant? What does it include? We at least know one piece of the book of the covenant, don't we? Please? Thank you, the Ten Commandments. But it's not just the first part of Exodus 20. It's everything, Exodus 20 through 23. And really the rest of that just is a nice summation of Torah. And the people respond, what? We do. Then Moses takes the blood and seals it by throwing it on the people. And the covenant, this covenant of marriage is now sealed in blood. Now, what I want us to see, though, is on this day, the most amazing thing, the most amazing thing happened. And I think it kind of gets lost in the story. And here's where I realized where I was going to sign some verses, and I'm going to do it right now, okay? Can someone get Exodus 19, verse 11, and read it? You're going to read it out loud. Thank you. Can someone have, get Exodus 31, verse 18? Thank you. Uh, can someone get Proverbs 1, verse 8? Going once, twice. Thank you. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 1. Thank you. Uh, I'll skip that one, since you guys are kind of hesitant to read this morning. Are you guys thinking football already? You better not. (laughs) Uh, Micah 6, verse 8. Thank you. Someone has that memorized, right? Uh, How about Matthew 7, verse 12? 
Good. All of you guys know that verse. I know you do. Uh, wait till you see it. Um, okay, that's good. Okay. Who has Exodus 19, 11? Be ready on the third day, for on the third day, God's going to come down on Mount Sinai. Now listen to this. In the sight of all the people. They're going to see him. They're going to see God. In all his glory. You talk about a massive fireworks display that they're going to be witness to fire, wind, his voice like thunder. In fact, they, it almost kills them. Just the voice of God. And here's what's going on. God is making himself known. No longer is he hidden behind a cloud or a pillar of fire. He's not masked as just an ordinary human being like when he shows up uh, in Abraham's tent. His awesome presence with all its glory is being revealed. Now I want you to take note of some details in verses 15, 16, and 17 of Exodus 24. This is why we need to read the text carefully. Details like up the mountain, the glory of the Lord, his appearance, the cloud, six days, Moses. Tell me where all those exact details show up in the Gospels, all of them. Matthew 17, Mark also records it, I think, in Mark 9, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to be transfigured. All these details are in the gospel, six days, up a high mountain, glory, his appearance, cloud, Moses. Because what our New Testament wants us to see that the same God who is unveiling himself in Exodus is the same one who's being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And we know this God is who? Jesus. And that's why even in Exodus 24, verse 29, I mean, this is, you, you don't have to read your Bible the same way I do, really, you don't. But when I read my Bible this way, I get so excited. I see Jesus all over the book. So then in verses 9, when Moses, Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they go up the mountain. It says, they saw the God of Israel. What do they see? Well, it says they saw his feet. Something like the pavement, made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. Those feet were standing on. And then they say, and God didn't even raise a hand against us. He didn't kill us with his hand. We were in his very presence. So they saw his hand. And then it even says, and they ate and they drank. God has feet. God has a hand. God can eat and drink. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. Now, 
This Sinai thing is such a dramatic event. I mean, not only do they see Christ in all his glory, but they also get his heart. God speaks. In fact, this is the first time in the history of the world where God speaks to a people. It starts in Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying. When's the last time it, and it says, and God spoke. And God spoke. And God spoke. And what happened? The world was created. And now it says, and God spoke. What's he doing? I mean, this is just more than just God speaking, because when God speaks, he creates. And now when he speaks, he recreates, which is why God says, let this be on the third day. This is the day of recreation. Now, also, we need to understand that, that, that when, when God speaks, as, as, as when anybody speaks, especially in this manner, God, God speaking is actually his self-disclosure. What, what God is doing here is he is actually laying out his heart to his bride. He's, he's telling them who he is. He's showing them his likes, his dislikes, and his ways. And this stuff is so important to God, and it's so from God, that listen to Exodus 31, verse 18. Who has that text? Did you catch that last clause? <laughs> he writes it in stone with his very own finger. I want us to remember the context in which these words are given. This is a marriage ceremony. And I I want us to remember the one to whom Israel's being betrothed to. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's who they're betrothed to. And see, this is why God wants a bride who is holy as he is holy without stain, blemish, or defect, but a perfect reflection of him because this is a marriage with a mission. God wants a bride who will reflect him to the nations to put this holy God on display to show the world what God is like. Be holy as I am holy. And how would we ever know what holiness looked like if it wasn't for Torah? And see, this is why some Christians' attitude towards what we call the law is somewhat disturbing to me. Especially when you consider Jesus' attitude, Torah, when Jesus says, you know what, I didn't come to abolish Torah. In fact, I wrote Torah. So how dare we then not know these words? Because to not know them is to not know aspects of God. And how dare we dismiss these words? Because really to dismiss them is to dismiss God. And to abolish them is to abolish aspects of God. 
But see, I think the way that Christians today dismiss this part of the Bible is they, they put a label on it called the law, and then they just kind of theolo- theologize the law away. Not even knowing what's here. Do you know what's in Exodus 20 through 23? Now listen, the Hebrew word for, for this part of the Bible isn't even law. It's, it's the Hebrew word Torah. Torah, if you think, means law. You're so wrong. Torah means instruction. It means guidance. Who has Proverbs 1 verse 8? Hear, my son, your father's instruction, his Torah. Who has Proverbs 3, verse 1? My son, do not forget my teaching, my Torah. Keep your commands in my heart. Now, here's what I want you to know this morning. Hebrew as a language is a verb-based language as opposed to English, which is noun-based, which means almost every Hebrew word can trace its roots back to a verb. Is Torah a noun or a verb? It's a noun. So we ask then, what is its root? And of course, its root is a verb. The root is the word yara. Yara is simply an archery term, which means to take aim, or to shoot. So what's Torah in light of this? It's the target. It's the bullseye. It's the thing that we aim at. The opposite of Torah is hata. Hata is not to hit the mark, but hata is to miss it. Hata is all over the Old Testament. Every time you see the word sin in the original language, it's the word hata. Paul picks up on this, for all have sinned and missed the mark. We miss the mark. We fall short of the mark of the glory of God. That's what sin is. It's to miss the mark. And so what Torah does is it lays out the bullseye. In fact, oftentimes uh, this is all put within the paradigm of, of path because there are so many paths that a person can choose in life, right? I, mean, I can't tell you how many times people ask me, like, how do I know what, what God's will is for my life? You know what the answer to that is? The biblical answer is it's Torah. That's God's will for your life. Because Torah lays out the path that hits the mark. And that's why for the Jew today and for Jews like Jesus and James and John and Peter, uh, Torah is not law. Torah is simply God laying out the path, that narrow path that leads to life. I mean, how does Jesus' Sermon on the Mount end? I mean, in fact, his whole sermon is that he is explaining Torah properly, and it ends with, narrow is the path that leads to life. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. 
David says he leads me in paths of righteousness. The means by which the shepherd leads his flock is Torah. So what happens then when we get off the path? What are we supposed to do? Just cry and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I blew it. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, crying and, and, and I blew it is, is a part of it. But this is where another word fits in. You shuvah. If you're off the path, you shuvah. And that's our word for repent. You turn. And you return to the path. See, really, it's through Torah that the shepherd is discipling a whole nation. He's laying out the path for them to walk. This is why they love it. Now, what does the path look like? Well, you get a good summary of, of, of Torah in Exodus 20 through 23. And of course, it starts with the Ten Commandments, but it's more than that. And I want to plow into it just a little bit this morning. Can't begin to even uncover it all, but just so we can get a flavor of it. Because my guess is right now that very few of us have even read stuff like Exodus 21 verse 2, which says, if you buy a Hebrew servant... He is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. And if he comes alone, he is to go free alone. And if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. And if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her and her master. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then my master must take him before the judges and he shall take him to the door of or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, and then he will be his servant for life. And so we read this, and it's like, now we want to think football game today, right? Or we just check out. Because we're, 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 we're stepping into things that feel scary. And right away we hear the word slave, and, 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 and we want to do now, with the Bible, literally, I almost thought about doing this this morning. Let's just tear that out. Rip. And have a Bible like Thomas Jefferson who literally ripped out hundreds of pages of the Bible. Or we can feel the tension of this and understand that the slavery in that day was nothing like the slavery we know from the 18th century. Because just a few laws later, God says, if anyone kidnaps another person, he is to be put to death. But this is a slavery that occurred because things happen in life and people go bankrupt and people find themselves in great need. And God is not saying, I want to put a government in place that's going to take care of people. The welfare system of this day is what we just read. Be a neighbor. Bring them in. And the first thing I want laid out is his freedom. Seven years. And I want you to treat him so well that at the end, he wants to put an all in his ear and say, I don't want to leave you. I want to become a bondservant. This is what Paul says. I'm a bondservant of Christ because I love my master so much. That's the law. Or let's keep going here. 21 verse 15. 
Some of us, I know, have quoted this to our kids. I sure have. <laughs> Anyone who attacks his father or his mother must, first, must be put to death. Somewhere else it says if, you even, if, a, if a son curses, damn you, dad, shall stone him. Talk about politically incorrect, right? See, and automatically we just think, wow, this law is so inconsiderate of children. Flip that coin over. Don't you see what God is communicating through this law? He is elevating parents to such a high status. I am a child. I have parents. Rod, don't you dare dishonor them. Don't. And look at our culture today. Parents have their hands tied behind their backs. We can't even parent anymore. And kids today are are almost like this to parents. And we're like, why is this happening? God's just teaching. I'm telling you. The basic unit to a healthy anything, a healthy community, a healthy church, a healthy nation is the unit of family and of a marriage. And God is going to do everything he can to preserve that. Because that's the mean by which kids come into the world. That's the mean by which kids are raised and developed and discipled and sent out. And when that's broken, the whole thing's broken. And that's why when people say our country's falling apart because of the economy, it's not the economy, stupid. (laughs) Sorry, I know. I did plan that one. (laughs) But when I see marriages and families disintegrating, it shouldn't surprise us at all that our country's disintegrating. Or how about the next chapter? Or wait, is it verse 16 of this one? No, let's go to 22 verse 16. Would a young man like to stand up and read this? I would like a young man. Thank you. Thank you. Basically, God's saying, you have sex with a woman, you marry her. And with that one law, God just laid out his high view of sexuality because he is saying sex is for marriage, period. Because if you think about it, the biblical act of sex, or the act of sex is, in the Bible, the actual wedding ceremony. You can't have sex, says God, without marriage. So young man, take responsibility for your actions. Young woman, take responsibility of your Bible. If you're ready for sex, you better be ready for marriage. Or how about 22 verse 21? Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him. 
Why not? Why not, Israel? Because Israel, guess what? You guys are just aliens. Don't take advantage of the widow or an orphan. In fact, if you do, and they cry out to me, there's that word ze'akah, the same ze'akah that God heard, those screams. If I hear their screams, my anger will be aroused. I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. We say this is so harsh, but this is the beating heart of God saying, this is who I am. This is what I care about. I am holy, and you are to be holy as I am holy. And my holiness is reflected in a people who are passionate about the things I'm passionate about. And as a holy God, I'm passionate about the stranger. I'm passionate about the widow. I'm passionate about the orphan. I'm passionate about the poor. I'm passionate about the least of these. And this is why, in light of the statistic that every year, I don't know if you know that, but 600 refugees come to Grand Rapids alone. People from other countries who have almost nothing, and and they've left their home behind, so they're essentially homeless, and they arrive here. And my question is, not what the government's going to do, but what are the people of God going to do? And that's why I love RIM. And I love the fact that right now, this Iraqi family of nine who just became homeless and stepped foot in Grand Rapids, this church is aggressively, aggressively welcoming them. That's what was announced this morning. If you want to be a part of that welcome, be at the upper room at at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock today, and love them. This is God's heart. And we want to say that these laws are no longer relevant, and they're obsolete. Really? Really? Or how about 23, just so I can get one from each chapter. Look at verse 4. This one stunned me this week. And I'll tell you why in a second. But just look at it. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off. By the way, so many of these things have to do with... that. that, that just say, okay, you, you come across your enemy's car in a ditch. What do you do? Take care of it. Take it to him. If you see his donkey or someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not just walk past it, but help him. And see, I always thought Jesus added a twist to love your neighbor as yourself when he said, and I want you to love your enemies. But all he's doing is saying, do you know what loving your neighbor as yourself really means? It's Torah. Love your enemy. And see, I understand today when our culture reads this stuff, how it recoils against these laws. And I think the bottom line is because as a culture, we can't handle the truth anymore. We're soft, and our softness is rooted in narcissism and pride and this life-for-me mentality. But here's the deal. Through Torah, God is instructing us. He's guiding us. He's teaching us what it means to be holy as he is holy. And when you read this, you start to see that God's holiness is spelled out in love. That godly love is, in the Bible, not a noun. 
It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a verb. Just like faith isn't a noun. It's not information that I know. It's a verb. It's how we live and how we act. It's doing something about our enemy's donkey. Caring for him. And see, really what God is laying out here is, 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 is holiness is the act of loving our neighbor as ourself. It's the act of loving the stranger and the widow and the orphan and the person who's bankrupt as ourselves. And where holiness abounds, love will abound. And where love abounds, holiness will abound. Now, if this is overwhelming to you and you just want a good summation of Torah, there are places in the Bible that sum it up. Psalm 15 sums it up. Um, I'm going to pass on that one. But who has Micah 6 verse 8? Great summation of Torah. That's Torah summed up. To do justice, to help the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the least of these, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That sums it up. Jews sum up Torah in, in, in two. They say the whole thing can be summed up with Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the one. And love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus actually summed it up in one pithy statement. Did you know that? Who has Matthew 7, verse 12? You want a summation of the law and the prophets? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's all God's spelling out. And we want to say that that's obsolete, irrelevant. Um, Paul can sum it up in actually one word. Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul lays it out, all these commands. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet. He says all can be summed up in one word. What word does he sum it up in? Love. Love. And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish Torah, but I came to fulfill it. In fact, this word fulfill is the Greek word telos. And the Greek word telos means goal or aim, or better yet, to fill up. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to abolish Torah because I'm the aim of Torah. I'm the goal of Torah. He doesn't abolish it. He fills the whole thing up. So that way we understand it all today is in light of him. And as a teacher, he explains it. I mean, this is what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it was said this. But let me properly explain what that means. You shall not commit adultery. No, it's not just that. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully, that's the heart of it. And he brings Torah to the heart. It's true intent. Matthew 23, verse 23. This is when he's talking to the Pharisees who are so bent over the letter of the law. And he says, you guys are, are, are missing it. It's about justice. Compassion. Hosea, Micah 6, verse 8. And faithfulness. 
And see, Jesus' actual life, in fact, Jesus' actual life is something that Christians, I think, fail to consider because what we like to do is, like the Apostles' Creed does, is we celebrate his birth, and then we skip right from his birth to his death and his resurrection and then his ascension, and we say, Paul, you explain all that stuff for us. But here's what we forget, is that Jesus actually lived a life. And through living this life, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us how Torah is to be walked out. And 1 John 2 says, if anyone claims to be in Christ, he will walk as Jesus walked. And Jesus walked God's Torah to perfection. Now here's what I want to do next. How did this marriage go between God and Israel? Like a lot of marriages, right? It doesn't go well. I mean, it's actually worse than that. It's tragic. For one simple reason, Israel can't do it. Over and over again, she fails. And her failure is, it's not even small. It's huge. And like Paul says, it's not that the Torah failed. It's, it's Israel who failed. And, and when you read the prophets, the, the, the prophets speak of, of Israel's failure in terms of adultery. Why? Well, it's simple. This is a marriage. Israel isn't just breaking rules, they're breaking wedding vows. And to violate these laws is to violate the marriage. And that's why when you're in this marriage, all sin is unfaithfulness and adultery. That's why Hosea, uh, over and over again, says, Israel, you played the whore, you played the whore. Um, The other prophets use this same clause. Ezekiel 16 says the same thing. Israel, you played the whore. In fact, gets so graphic about the way Israel spread her legs for other lovers. I mean, like a complete disgusting. But it's not just that Israel's sin was sexual, but all sin, according to the prophets, is adulterous. God is holy. His Torah is holy. Paul says that. But we're not. And so as good as Torah is, as beautiful as it is, in fact, if we could all do it right now, we would live in a utopia. It would be a paradise. Um, It's just like God said to Adam in the garden, Adam, do this and you will live. You will experience life to the full. But like Adam, Israel can't do it. So now we're into our theology. This is why in some ways Torah is bad news. Because at the end of the day, it condemns us. It condemns us because we can't do it. You know that story in the Gospels? Supposedly this woman is caught in adultery. And these religious people bring her. I don't know why they don't throw the man in the middle too. But they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery, and you know what our Torah says, uh, she is to be stoned. 
That's what the law does, doesn't it? It condemns us. When it's all said and done, we all deserve to be stoned. Do you know that right now? Do you really know that? Because if you don't, do you know what you are? You're a really good Pharisee. (laughs) And Grand Rapids has a lot of Pharisees. A lot of people who just think if I'm good enough and I go to church enough and give enough and pray enough and, and, and do all these things that through all this striving and all this performing, I can actually offer a righteousness to God that will please him. That's not what the Bible teaches. And here's the beautiful thing is that God is very well aware of this problem because already in the Old Testament, through the prophets, God is promising Israel to deal with her problem. In fact, I love in Hosea 11 when she just looks at Israel and just says, how can I give you up? I, I, I can't. I love you with an everlasting love. And, and that's because of who God is. He loves Israel because he loves Israel because he loves her. And then in Hosea 2, I, I love how he, he's just reflecting and he wants Israel to reflect. Israel, do you remember those good old days? Do you remember the desert, how I just wooed you to myself and how we experienced that love in the desert? And then he says, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to lead you into the desert. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to melt your heart. And then he says, I'm going to make a covenant again with you. And you're going to call me my husband and I will betroth you, Israel, to me forever. Or how about one of my favorite texts in the whole Old Testament? Did I give someone Jeremiah 31? Verse 31 through 34. Again, this is God just being so aware of the problem and and speaking into what he's going to do about the problem. God said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah in their hearts, in their minds, and I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man have to teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Yada, know the Lord, because they will all yada. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And basically what God is saying, I understand you, you, you can't keep this Torah, and, 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 but the day is going to come when I'm going to write this thing literally on your hearts. And when I do that, you will, you will yada me, you will know me, I will forgive your iniquity, and I will remember your sin no more. And then the question when you read something like that, if you don't know the New Testament, is how is God going to do this? How? Well, think about that woman who's brought to Jesus. I mean, there she is. She's surrounded by these men who all are about to stone her. What does Jesus do? 
he gets down on his knee and he starts to write. <laughs> oh, I love it. Finger, stony ground, writing. Come on, to a Jewish people who, who communicate through pictures, what is he saying to them? The whole people have been raised on these stories. Torah, Torah, Torah. In fact, God wrote it with his very finger. And here is Jesus. I'm the law. I wrote the law. He who's without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. With that one sentence, not only does he not negate the law, oh, that's a stupid law, let's get rid of that. But more than that, he exposes 